0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The grind of creativity, the work that goes into artistry, isn't that cool, but it can be illuminating. In a bit, we'll hear from Nick Hornby, the guy who wrote High Fidelity, talking about why he felt the need to write a whole book comparing Charles Dickens to Prince. But first, actor and comedian Steve Martin is on the pod. He's got a new book looking back at his career in film titled Number One is Walking, My Life in the Movies and Other Diversions. For it, he teamed up with cartoonist Harry Bliss to illustrate various anecdotes and vignettes. And they both talked to NPR's Mary Louise Kelly and, you know, she asked them both about their careers and longevity and what's next. And it's really interesting to hear these two lifers in the arts agree that, well, there's just some things more important. Important than work.
1: Steve Morton has done just about everything over his long career stand up, banjo playing, writing a novella, and yes, movies. A gazillion movies.
2: He hates these cans! Stay away from the cans! Hey, Jerry, how are you? Bobby Bowfinger, Bowfinger yeah. Films. We worked together on that thing, you know, a couple of years ago. What? Officer Jacques Clouseau, gendarme, said class.
3: There's ah. your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't
1: pillows. (laughs) Martin says he has always thought about sitting down to write about his movie career, but so many of the best stories didn't fit into a cohesive arc.
2: I said, I don't want to do a book of anecdotes because, you know, oftentimes they're, they're tiny. They're little tiny things. And I approached Harry and I said... Would you be interested in drawing up these anecdotes?
1: Harry is New Yorker cartoonist Harry Bliss. And yeah, of course he was interested. Their collaboration has now resulted in a comic memoir, Number One is Walking. When they came to talk with me about it, Bliss spoke of the creative process, of how Martin suggested anecdotes, including one when he, Bliss, was in a particularly receptive frame of mind. And just to note that he mentions drug use.
4: One day he called me and I was hiking in the woods and, uh, I had taken a small dose of, uh, psychedelic, which I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't did. know that. I, I did. Well, I didn't, <laughs> wow. this is not something I did as a kid, but, uh, I well, missed. I could tell I, you're high right now, by <laughs> the way. Go ahead. I was walking in the woods and I was feeling really good. And the phone rang. It was Steve, and I thought, "Well, I'm. I'm. I think I can handle this phone. This. I think I can handle this." So I p- answered the call, and he told me this really funny anecdote about. Uh, I think it was Selma Diamond. Is that right, Steve? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he told me, and I laughed out loud. And I got off the phone, and I. I well, just, you were high. I, I mean, was. Well, yeah. I, I was high, but uh, well, I wasn't too high. But yeah. I just when I got off the phone, Mary Louise, I was, I was just standing there in the. Snow in the woods of New Hampshire, and it was just like indescribable to have that moment happen. So
1: indescribable in what way? I mean, you, well, you have to you, describe. It's almost it now. like
4: I will describe it in a way that uh, David Byrne described. It's like how how did I get to this place? Where did this house come from? Where did this beautiful wife come from? Uh, I, I just
1: why is Steve Martin calling me on this snowy walk in the woods to tell me to write his life story? Yeah, yeah
4: how did I get to this point? But it was it was a
2: beautiful moment. Uh,
1: and
4: by and, the way,
2: each book comes with a dose. <laughs> Makes it easier to read.
1: <laughs> All right, we got to explain the title.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Number one is walking. Steve, go.
2: This phrase always stuck in my mind. Number one is walking, and it's used on a movie set when the when the call sheet comes in. You know, the, the sort of lead actor, the ones with the most lines, is called number one, and then there's number two and number three. The people that really by lines. And. When the AD, assistant director, is on his walkie-talkie, they don't want to say—when you're outdoors, they don't want to say, Steve Martin is walking to the set, because it's you know, like heard all, all around, and it can create you know a, a hubbub or something. Right. And so they change it to number one is walking, number two is walking, and it was always kind of embarrassing. So, number one is walking. So, I'm doing these films, and I'm hearing number one is walking, getting even more proud, number one is walking, that feels good— And then I did It's Complicated with Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin, and I heard, number three is walking.
1: (laughs) You had been demoted. Did that actually happen? Is that true?
2: Actually happened.
1: Well, that's something that struck me in this book. It's very funny. It's also very sweet. Um, and I want to ask about uh, the Parenthood chapter. There's a drawing of you, Steve, driving home after a screening of Parenthood, and you're you know you're you're this huge star at that point, and you're really worried about your performance.
2: I guess there's an assumption that at a certain point you're just supremely confident, and I don't think that's probably true for anybody. So I did this movie, Parenthood, and I went to watch it. I could tell it was playing great. And driving home, I thought, wow, everyone in this movie is fantastic except for me. And I went home and I laid in bed, which is part of the story, and I'm just thinking it over and thinking it over. And I thought, wait a minute. They didn't hire seven fantastic actors and one lousy one. So I must be good, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh you know it's just it's just the thing of watching yourself because it's just you I don't know how to describe it.
1: But. Well, you say it in this chapter, um, which is something I hadn't thought about. But if you're ever feeling too insecure or sensitive, think about trying to watch a film of yourself for two hours in close-up and come out unscathed. And <laughs> Harry, your illustration of Steve. <laughs> a, it
2: makes me laugh so much. It's what I'm seeing. <laughs> you
1: know? Harry, describe what, what we're seeing. Well, it's
4: just a ridiculous pop, bug-eyed guy. with a He's got a hole in his tooth, and he's, it's just <laughs> huge eyes. Eyebrows and, and the, the contrast between Mary Steenberg and... Virgin. Virgin. Uh, and, and that drawing is, is pretty fun to do. Uh, yeah.
2: And he put in
4: my thought, which is, is that what I look like? Yeah. And that <laughs> I will say this, the last... Uh, and this was a fun thing to do. The last, very last illustration or drawing is more appropriate on this page is Stephen Bed. And, uh, you know, when he thinks to himself, I must be good. But I gave him two uh, a Laurel and Hardy dolls that he's sleeping <laughs> with. <laughs> and that's just fun because I know we both love Laurel and Hardy yeah. and stuff. So.
1: so in this memoir um, about your movie career, Steve, it includes why you stopped doing movies. And there's a line, I lost interest in movies at the same time the movies lost interest in me. Really?
2: Well, I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but, you know, you get the feeling that, that the movies are moving on. There's new stars. There's new focus. The Movies are, are different. make different kinds of movies now. But also, I, I wanted to stay home more because I have a family now. So I couldn't... I didn't want to go away to a, someplace, you know, for three or four months. And so when Only Murders came along... You know, I said, well, I have to shoot it in New York because that's where I live. And they said, well, it's a New York story, so that's fine. And that's just worked out great.
1: Harry Bliss, we've been talking about the arc of, of Steve's career. How about for you? Like, where does this tee you up for, for what you want to take on next?
4: You know, I, I'm i just not that ambitious anymore, I'm sad to say. I just, I, I don't know what it is. But I love working with Steve and I, and I love to cartoon. And cartooning I can do anywhere, but I, I'm with Steve in terms of family, and, you know, I think that's far more important than uh, constantly pushing yourself to be successful at mm-hmm. something. I just I – li- I like the process. The process is the most important thing for me, so.
2: Well, also, my, my friend Marty Short said to me one time, he says, if we don't ease our ambition at our age, it's a little sick. <laughs> <laughs> or a little sad i think he did, so.
1: <laughs> Well here's to easing of ambition and to a to a great book a great read thank you both so much
4: thank you, you know, thanks mary louise
1: that is steve morton and harry bliss they are the team behind number 1 is walking my life in the movies and other diversions
0: So I would actually love to hear what Charles Dickens and Prince would say to that quote from Martin Short about ambition, because the thing that those guys had in common was just a bananas commitment to putting out work. That's according to Nick Hornby, whose new book Comparing the Two Artists is called, well, Dickens and Prince. And he spoke to NPR's Alyssa Nadworny about what we can learn from comparing the two. What does... It was
3: the best of times. It was the worst of times.
5: And... Hey,
0: look me over. Tell me, do you like what you see?
5: Have in common? Well, a lot, according to a new book by author Nick Hornby, called Dickens and Prince. Dickens, as in Charles Dickens, the 19th century English author, and Prince, as in, well, Prince.
3: They both worked harder than perhaps anyone's ever worked in the field of the arts.
5: Hornby says he started to make The Connection a couple of years ago, when Prince's The Sign of the Times box set came out.
3: There's something like 63 extra songs, and that's the extra on top of a double album. And it turned out that Prince was working on three different albums at once. And um, and I thought, oh, that's so weird, because Dickens used to write two books at once, and it went on from there.
5: He sees the two as creative idols. He has loved Dickens since he came across Bleak House on his own at university.
3: I think I was very grateful that I'd never been introduced to Dickens before because one of the problems I have when I recommend him to people is that they've tried to read him at school and they hate him uh, because they, those are some long sentences and some long books and they they miss the joy and the humor I and mean, Dickens is so funny
5: And he first saw Prince in concert in the 80s and said it was life-changing.
3: It was an extraordinary show with this huge band, all synchronized to within an inch of their lives, dancers, horn section. It was just in in the wake of Purple Rain and he'd kind of returned to his funk roots, I guess. But I just came having had my socks knocked off, thinking I can't do any kind of straight job.
5: The full name of Nick Hornby's new book is Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius. I started by asking him what exactly that particular kind of genius was.
3: With both of them, I think that their creativity was unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like they didn't even need to think about it. Mm-hmm. It just poured out of them. Uh, if you see what Dickens did in the course of an average day, you you, you get tired. I mean, there's uh, there's 12 (laughs) volumes of letters and each of those volumes of letters is about the size of one of his novels. But he's got the novels as well, plus he edited magazines. He wrote plays, he went on tours, he had 10 kids. So it's very it's really hard to imagine that he slept. And <laughs> this business of writing two books at once, I think if you're a writer, it's just impossible to get your head around. I mean, These are big, complicated books full of people and complicated plots. Yeah. And he kept them somehow apart in his head and moved from one to the other as far as we know, in the same week.
5: And how does that compare to
3: Prince? Well, Prince never stopped recording. Um, He woke up in the morning and he recorded. And um, there's an estimate that there's enough for a new album every six months for (laughs) the next 40 years or something, everything that's in his vault Mm -hmm. that uh, that wasn't released. He, He recorded too much for his record company and... He went on these tours, which, once he'd finished a show his people would have found him somewhere else to play. So the show's finished at 11, and then he'd start another one at 1 in the morning and play a two- or three-hour show with the with the band. That's when he did a lot of cover versions, and it was much looser. But, yeah, who does a show after they've done a show and then wakes up in the morning and records 20 songs?
5: I loved your notion that part of why their output was so high was that both Dickens and Prince were not actually perfectionists.
3: Yeah, I think that's a very interesting part of what I was interested in. And, and uh, they were so consumed, I think, with new ideas and wanting to get on and wanting to finish what they'd started that they didn't have time to go over things again and again and again. Um, they, they just wanted to move on. And Prince really didn't have the time to spend a year on a track like some contemporary bands are reputed to have done. He was like, get it down and move on. And there's a lovely story that his recording engineer, Susan Rogers, tells about building him a studio. And she was very nervous about him using it for the first time. And he came in and he wanted to record the song, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, that's on Sign of the Times. And when she played it back... It sounded like he'd recorded it underwater. And she was horrified. But he kind of shrugged and lived with it and he liked the way it sounded, and that's exactly how it is on the album. Well, I've been talking stuff in a violent room. Dickens Basically, published first drafts, even though there are a lot of amendments on his manuscript pages. But he didn't go back over the work when it was published in book form. For example, there was just too much to do, and I, I think that's such a, a generous way of working.
5: Yeah, as you point out in your book, we tend to look for these kind of connections and comparisons in our idols, Prince Dickens. Why is that? Like, what do you think we can learn from? exploring them in this way to figure out kind of how they impact us and how they connect with each other?
3: Well, one of the things that was interesting to me once I'd finished the book was that I, I realized that I'd been writing about two superstars. And if you want to write about a 19th century superstar, you're not spoilt for choice, actually, because people tend to, tended to hang out in their own countries. Uh, but Dickens cracked America hmm. like the Beatles did. And so, I was comparing their success as much as anything and and both of them were so successful that it, it gave me an opportunity to do that. But also we've got these places in our heart and head for particular artists and I guess we look for our own connections. If you love... Bruce Springsteen, as much as you love Anne Tyler, then um, maybe you're thinking, what do they have? What do they have in common? And I, I, I actually can see things with those two that they probably <laughs> wouldn't know about each other. But the way it comes through me makes mm-hmm. sense to me.
5: Well, it's interesting that you say it, you phrase it like that, how it comes through you. Because I felt like there were sort of three main characters in the book Dickens, Prince, and you. You bring yourself into this analysis. It's a
3: memoir as well, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, kind
5: of a meditation on your own career and creative process and kind of how these works influenced you.
3: Yes, and, and what I can learn from the way they worked to get myself to work more and harder and better.
5: Nick Hornby, his new book is Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius. Thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Jill Ryan, Todd Month, Samantha Balaban, Ravenna Koenig, Kalani Saxena, Katherine Welch, Tilda Wilson, Melissa Gray, Megan Lim, Courtney Dorning, Elena Burnett, and Justine Kennan. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.